I want to uh, thank Paul uh, for helping us worship God. It's really uh, a blessing to do that. And, uh, you know, I think when we get to heaven, we're finally going to learn to do it well and uh, be able to praise God with everything we have. Uh, that'll be a fantastic experience. I think one time in my life, I was at a, I was at a conference, and it was a Promise Keepers uh, Pastors Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. There were like 40,000 pastors there. And uh, we worshipped uh, that week, and I have never uh, worshipped to exhaustion like I did that week. Uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, just praising God. And uh, it just was a little taste of what heaven might be like. And I knew that heaven would be a place where I would be finally delivered from all the things that constrain us. You know, how we, when we go to worship, we're, sometimes we're thinking about what other people think of us. And we're... We're held back even by our own tiredness or our own embarrassment or whatever. We, we just don't know how to praise God fully. That's going to be a wonderful day. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to a passage we read last night. And that's Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and it reads thusly, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for, uh, Lord, all the effort everybody put in, uh, Lord, in building their teams and trying to win and competing and, and playing by the rules. Thank you, Lord, for watching over us and let it be a fun time. I pray that the lessons learned here would last that we would learn to be a team player where you put us, in the church in which you teach us and train us, Lord, in life with other believers. And I pray, Lord God, that we would not fight so much for our victory, but for yours. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask you, please come upon us and uh, help us to learn from your word, set our hearts free to worship you and learn of you, and be like you. And by your grace, we're hoping for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a question for you. Are good works good or bad? How many say bad? Raise your hand. Are good works bad? Somebody said sometimes. Are good works good? Aha! Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, obviously that phrase, uh, good works, is used twice in two different ways here in the same passage. 
uh, we are told that we are not saved by our works. And what's the reason for that here in the text? Lest anyone should boast. If you were saved by the good things you did, you would not be being given a gift of salvation. You would have earned your salvation. If, if you die and you stand at the judgment, and God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, well, God, just look at the record. Look how good I've been. Look at the things I've accomplished. Uh, that will not cut it. Because the Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So that's not a good argument. It's not a good argument to say, well, God, just weigh them out. You know, just put them in a scale. And let's see, you know, I'm pretty sure that my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. And God will say, you know, the comparison is not even to your good stuff versus your bad stuff. The comparison is to perfection and you. That's the scale in which you're weighed. So no, you're not ever saved by the good things you've done because God doesn't want to share His glory with anybody else. Everybody who gets to heaven is a trophy of God's grace. And I'm sure there are going to be people in heaven when you walk in and look at you and say, that's a miracle. <laughs> right there, flat out. How did you get here? You know, And they're going to be... Maybe angels walking by and say, mm-hmm. <laughs> Other people don't know, but we know. Up here, we, we were taking notes. We know. You know, heaven's going to be a miracle for all of us. Because we're saved by what? Grace through what? Faith. Hallelujah. Now, boasting is over. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. But then he says this. For we are God's workmanship. God was working. You know, in fact, the, the idea of works is three times in this, in this passage. Your good works to earn salvation fail. Can't do it. But God has been doing some good work. And that good work is that He, before the world was even made, loved you in Christ. He predestined you in love that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he was working when He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. He was working when He effectually called you by the Holy Spirit that you might come and believe in Christ. He was working when He applied the blood of Christ to your sins and, and imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. He was working when He raised Christ from the dead and joined you to that resurrection. You are... God's workmanship. He's been shaping you and crafting you to be the kind of person He wants you to be. Because He's got a mission for you. He's got a purpose in life for you. And it says it here. It says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now tonight I want to tell you we got a problem. We got a problem about good works. Uh, in in evangelical world we have preached so hard against good works 
We don't know how to do good works. We have tried to get the whole idea across. You're only saved by grace. Grace, grace, grace. And so the world looks at us and the world says, you Christians seem to have a very privatized religion. It's all about you. It's all about your personal salvation, your personal growth in Christ, but you don't seem to care about all the trouble in the world, except sometimes you're very critical of everybody else. Now that's, you might say, that's not fair, that's a bad rap. But I will tell you, it is a reputation. And I think we've earned it, unfortunately. God is working, and He has prepared good works. In other words, in your life ahead of you, whatever going to start tomorrow or however long the Lord gives you on this earth, the Lord has a set of good works with your name on it. There are things He has called you in the world to accomplish. Now we want to talk a little bit tonight about how that works. We were talking about how uh, in, in terms of goodness, our first, the first idea of goodness is what does God think of us? And we talked about how we are justified by faith. Didn't we talk about that? And then last night, we began to talk about our own personal holiness. We're already counted as perfect in, in God's sight through Christ, but living our own personal life, we struggle with sin. Now, what is that process called of, of growing in holiness? Sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. sanctification. Does anybody know, if I asked you the catechism answer, what is sanctification? And you got it back there? Could you stand up and say it out loud for us? But I'm very glad you made that mistake. Because that gives us an opportunity to compare the correct answer. Uh, you said justification. What, what, what did you say? Justification is a what? An act. One time, an act of God's free grace. Now, do you, do you have the sanctification answer? Does somebody else have it? What is sanctification? Sanctification is a what? A work of God's grace. Now, please compare the two. Justification happens one time when you do what? When you believe. When you come to faith in Christ. Now, some of you, even uh, as our brother told us, he doesn't remember a day when he didn't know Jesus. Does he have faith? Yes. Absolutely. If he doesn't have faith, he's not a Christian. You might have known about Jesus all your life, but you still personally have to have faith. It's a kind of a mystery sometimes when you're raised in a Christian home when that faith uh, comes about. Some of you remember a, a very particular day or a moment when you made a commitment to Christ, and, and maybe that's the day you celebrate as an anniversary of coming to faith, but you must have faith. When you have faith, you are justified. An act, boom, of God's Holy Spirit, and you are saved. But sanctification is not an act. It's not a one-moment deal. It, that's why the word there, theologically, 
it's very, it was very carefully chosen to help us understand that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. God's grace being used by the Holy Spirit to help us grow in our faith. That's our struggle. And sometimes it's a hard struggle. And we go through periods of our life where we feel like uh, we're not making a lot of progress. And then, then it seems like God does things to us and, and shapes. Sometimes it's trouble. Sometimes it's tribulation. Uh, some, sometimes it's good stuff. But it builds our faith and we grow closer to Christ. So those two kinds of goodness, we are in one moment made righteous by faith. For the rest of our life, we're growing in righteousness and holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. But both of those things could still be considered a very personal issue. And I'm afraid that that's where a lot of Christians stop. Right there. They get saved. They're very interested in growing closer to Jesus. But they don't know much about the world and how to relate to it. And the world is watching. I want to tell you a little bit of my story tonight uh, to illustrate even my struggle and journey with this. Um, as I told you, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, my father and mother broke up when I was about four years old. And my father had another woman on the side, so he lied to my mother. And uh, he was working for the railroad. He put us on the train, and he said, uh, when I get my vacation, I'll come up and get you and bring you back. And so he sent us up to my grandparents, who lived in New Jersey. And um, after arriving in New Jersey, after some time, my mother realized uh, that this marriage was over. Um, my mother's life fell apart, uh, emotionally, spiritually, economically. And so pretty soon we wound up uh, moving into city housing projects. Uh, my mom got pregnant by another guy. Uh, my grandparents were very moral people. She gave that child up for adoption, turned around and got pregnant again. And this was really the lowest point in my mother's life. She had uh, been raised in a, a very religious church-going home, uh, but she had wandered uh, far from the Lord. And one day, uh, another single-parent mom in that housing project, and you know, by this time, my family is on welfare. Um, and, and please, I want you to understand this. Uh, Newark, New Jersey um, is one of the most violent cities in America. Newark, New Jersey was so corrupt that when I was in high school, the mayor and the city council were all sent to prison. Uh, they were all part of the mafia. If you've seen The Sopranos, uh, you know a part of the city of Newark. Um, it's a seedbed of all kinds of, of crime. If you've seen American Gangster, you've seen a part of Newark. And Newark had more housing projects than any other city in America per capita. And the reason for that was because of the corruption. They could get federal dollars. They built these buildings. They used mafia-controlled uh, construction companies. So things were built with shoddy materials. So every year, things, some things fell apart in that housing project. The electricity all died for a couple of days. and Stuff like this would happen all the time. 
my mom went out to a, a little house church and she heard the gospel. The next day, the evangelist who was there and the pastor came to our house in the projects and led our family to Christ. Um, you know, I tell people that when you get saved, it doesn't mean that Jesus rolls up in a moving truck and takes you to Christian land, you know, where everything is nice and sweet and good. What it does mean is that Jesus shows up with a suitcase and he moves in. And Jesus left us in the projects. And that meant I was going to live uh, my grown-up years in a very rough and violent place. For a lot of my life, it just seemed like every day, walking home from school, I had a fight. And Newark became a majority non-white city uh, during my school years. African Americans moved up from the South. Puerto Ricans moved up from Puerto Rico. And fairly soon, my family was one of the few white families left uh, in my neighborhood. And so I had to fight a lot. And I usually had to fight more than one person at a time. And so there was a lot of bitterness and anger uh, growing in me. I remember uh, my mom weeping at the kitchen table because there was no food left in our house. I know what it's like uh, to go to school and feel something in my shoe and take my shoe up and five roaches jump out and run across the floor. Thank God I was in the back of the classroom. I remember the humiliation of being poor. But Jesus Christ saved me. I had given my life to him. And I will ever, forever, be grateful for his mercy in that. And then I, just like you, tried to start growing my Christian life in that context. So I was doing what every other Christian was doing. Glad I was saved, trying to live holy, even though I was always besieged with my own sinfulness and my, the temptations of my own heart. But there was one other aspect to my life that didn't seem to make sense. What does God think about justice? What does God think about poverty? And I began to kind of look at the church and look at the scriptures. And I, I had some struggle. Now, one of the things that was great was I was in a great church. When my mom was weeping at that table, we heard a knock at the door. And I went to the door, and there were the deacons with bags of groceries for my family. That's one reason, as a pastor, I've always told my people, there is never a day when anybody in this church has to go hungry. All we have to do is know you have a need, and our church will feed you. That's the way all churches should be. There should never be any hungry people in our churches. Anybody who's committed their life to Jesus Christ is our brother and sister, and we are to take care of them. Now, I learned the hard way that not every church was like that. I learned that not every church even knew what was going on in places like North New Jersey. In 1967, uh, when I was away at camp, uh, my city blew up in a race riot. The army had to be called in uh, to put that riot down. Block after block after block of my city was burned to the ground. 
Fifty-something people were killed in that riot. At the same summer, Detroit burst into flames. The 101st Airborne Division had to be called in to put down the riot in Detroit. The next year, my senior year in high school, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And again, my city blew up in a riot. And here I was as a young Christian trying to figure out what this wonderful faith I had, this great salvation that had been given to me, had to say about these issues in the world. And I will tell you that in the early part of my growing up years, I hated where I lived. I wanted to escape it. I, you know, I would go in the summer sometimes to a Bible camp, uh, you know, like this. It was wonderful, and, and and you know, and I began to pray, and I be, and I said, Lord, please give me some Christian friends where I live. Now, what I really meant, I'm gonna just be honest, uh, but I didn't articulate this to God. This was just inside my heart. I want some white Christian girl friends. <laughs> that's the truth that's really what I want and I I didn't know any of those kind of folk where I lived about a year or so later um, I remember being in my house and uh, there were about 11 teenagers there we were all from the, that block that neighborhood every one of them was African American and uh, they had become Christians and we were together in a really tight-knit youth group and witnessing all the time for Christ in our city. And God just said, I answered your prayer. And one of the young ladies there became my wife. Her name is Joan. And all of a sudden, my life took a giant leap into the issues of justice, and racism, and mercy. It expanded my whole world. God, in His sovereignty, had done me a favor by planning to send my family into North New Jersey. I would never have planned a life like that. I, I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, the troubles that I had. But I will tell you that it gave me something I could have gained no other way. And that was an introduction into this idea that God isn't just interested in saving souls. He's interested in saving people. That he loves all of them. Not just their souls, but their bodies as well. That he cares about them as an individual. He cares about them as an ethnicity. He cares about them as a culture. He cares about them as a country. That God really wants His glory known. That it is not God's will that all of us Christians should run up here to Horn Peak and camp out and hide out from the rest of the world. And we can't really do that. Because, you know, here's the problem. We're all sinners and we bring the world with us wherever we go. So I began to wrestle with the Scriptures. And... And one of the great books in the Bible that help us understand this thing about 
using good works is in the book of James. So turn with me there. Right after the book of Hebrews. We're going to start reading at uh, verse 14. What chapter? Chapter 2. Excuse me. James, the second chapter. We're going to start reading at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now I want you to know, this is a very controversial part of the Bible. In fact, it says that this was Martin Luther's most hated book in the Bible. He didn't like it. Because you remember some of the great themes of the Reformation. Can anybody here speak Latin? You know? Sola fide. Which means what? By faith alone. That's what launched the, the Reformation. The Catholic Church was telling all the people, no, 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 His faith is not enough. You've got to have the sacraments, and you've got to have them in the Roman Catholic Church. And you've got to do these acts of penance. And you, you, you've got to give this amount of money in order for us to let your soul get out of purgatory. And it was all works-based. And, and so the Reformers read the Scripture, and they were reading in Romans, and they were reading in Galatians. And man, their hearts just burst with joy, because no... Those things don't save. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Gratia, sola, fide, sola. Oh, man. They they call those the great solas of the Reformation. And they are great. They're liberating. They're freeing. 
But you must understand that the Reformation was a theology built in a certain context. It was built against a heresy that had crept into the church. But the Reformation in and of itself is not Christianity. The Reformation in itself is not the whole story. This is the whole story. All of the scripture is for us to obey, to live, and to follow. I rejoice in the doctrines of the Reformation. I am reformed. You, you're not going to applaud for that. I thought that's pretty worthy of, of affirmation. I'm reformed. Okay. Now, you reformed people out there, it's time to move from being reformed to also being obedient. Amen. Mm, thank you. <laughs> now, by the way, let me, let me be very careful here. Let me under, help you understand something. James says it very clearly when he puts them together in verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So faith has to be active, and it has to be completed. But what is the evidence that any of us have faith? And that is how we live our life. And what happens for most of us as Christians is our religion is one in which we're really, really happy that the guilt is taken care of through justification. And I, of all of you here, I'm really happy about that. And as Christians... My personal, intimate relationship with Jesus is the greatest joy of my life. Some might accuse me of being a pietist because I really love Jesus. And I want to sing about Jesus. And I want to hear stories about Jesus. And I, and I want to grow close to Jesus. I have a very personal walk with God. It's my relationship with God. And I value it probably above all things in life. But that is not the reason Jesus saved me. Jesus didn't save me so that I would be his buddy. I'm one of his sheep, but I'm also part of his church. Jesus has called me to serve him in good works. Now, I want you to understand that for much of Christian history, the church had a reputation. You know, when Christianity first came into the Roman world, we were despised. We were a Jewish sect, and we were looked upon as really... Kind of, so they accused us of being atheists. They said, you know, the Greek world, the Roman we have a lot of gods, and you deny all of them. So you Christians must be an atheist. You say there's only one. And, and then... You know, you even go further than the Greek mythologies. You say that a virgin, you know, conceived and bore a son, and this a man is God's only son. And, and the man we crucified, the Roman way of execution, you're saying he rose again from the dead. This is crazy. We say the emperor is God, and, and that's how we have political cohesion, and that's what you've got to do. And Christianity was just a small, little group of people. And they were despised, you know, Paul writes it in Corinthians, that, you know, the Jews 
look for a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom, and, and Christianity seemed to offer nothing to the world. Within 450 years, the Roman Empire was Christian. And they said about us that we had turned the world upside down. How did we do it? Historians point to the reality that the Christians practiced mercy. The Romans said, these people care for our poor more than we do. The Christians would go out into the hillside and they would find little baby girls that had been left to die, to be exposed, because it, Romans didn't want baby girls. They wanted boys. And, and if they had too many girls, they would have them killed. They would just let them die. And the Christians would come along and pick up those baby girls and take them home and raise them as their own. When people had leprosy and everybody was running away from them, the Christians would run to them and bind their wounds and minister to them. When people were poor and had no food and they asked the Christians, the Christians would respond. And I want you to know that if you study history well enough, you will understand that almost every positive social improvement made in the last 2,000 years came by a Christian. Almost every positive step forward in social justice, standing for the rights of women, standing against the slave trade, standing even for the protection of animals in the SPCA, uh, a movement that William Wilberforce started in England as he fought against chattel slavery that almost all of these movements were started by God's people who cared about justice. Now, you are the future, a strong part of the future of the PCA. And we are known for being a denomination of the professional class. We have a high percentage of engineers and doctors and lawyers and school teachers and entrepreneurial people who own businesses and start them. We are a pretty affluent group. We are pretty elitist. We are very concerned about the public school system, so we create Christian schools. But they're not good enough, so we start classical Christian schools. And sometimes they aren't good enough, so we have homeschooling. <laughs> and we are creating one of the most elite groups in America. You are the 1% of the world. You have the money, you have the education you will have the social networks. You will be able to call people and get things done. Now you may say, I I've never looked at myself that way. Well, you have to do a little comparison with what the rest of the world has. Now here's a question. What is it for? What did Jesus save you for? Now, 
at this point, I, I need to have a little discussion with you, and I'll try to be quick about this. Because, you know, some people, uh, they have this view of Christianity, and I think uh, Candace might have mentioned it tonight, or somebody did, you know, where the idea is that we Christians are to change the world. And they call those kind of folks transformationalists. That, oh, you're going to go into L.A., or you're going to go to New York City, Chicago, or someplace, and you're going to save the city. You're going to give it up for God. And some other Christians mock that and say, look, you know, all God really wants from you is to be faithful in a small space. And I would say that both have aspects of the truth and both are a little deceitful. Jesus is building a kingdom. It's not all about you. It's always been all about Him. And what He wants is not only for the message of the cross to be preached, but the life of the cross to be lived in the world. We're different from the world. He says, He prayed for us that we would be in the world but not of it. But when you look at the ministry and life of Jesus, did Jesus care for human need? There was ever a man who had compassion on the sick. It was Jesus. Do you think he modeled that so that we would forget it? Do you think he modeled that so that we would say, well, well Jesus, really, actually, the only thing important is to get their soul saved. Because, you know, you can heal them, but guess what happened, Jesus, to all those people you healed? They died anyway. That's a pretty cynical thing, but I'll tell you, that's almost what evangelicals say. God loves human beings. You cannot read the whole Bible, especially the prophets, and not understand that God's judgment fell upon his people because of how they mistreated the poor, of how they made distinctions between themselves about how God was angry at them, even about their ethnocentrism. That's what the book of Jonah is about. You could call him the racist prophet. Because Jesus was coming to be the seed of Abraham that was going to bring blessing to the whole world. What I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, if you are the future of the PCA, then you need to make it a little different than its present. It's a great church. It's a great church. Praise God there's a church like it in America that is standing for the Word of God and standing for the truth without apology. Hallelujah! But we've got miles to go because we are an overwhelmingly white church and we are an overwhelmingly middle-class church and the poor need the gospel. I have a vested interest in this because I was one of them. And I want a million more like me. And I would never have come to Jesus except some Christians said, we will not run away from the city. We will not run away from the poor. We will risk our families. We will risk our children to be among them. And we will serve Christ here in this place. And they discipled my family out of poverty. I don't think God likes poverty. 
I don't think he wants anybody to live in it. I think it's a sign of the, the fall. It's a part of the curse. It's one thing to choose poverty to help people. But if poverty comes from injustice, if poverty comes from racial discrimination, if poverty comes from theft and corruption, if poverty comes from the redlining of banks that won't give poor people loans to fix up their houses, if poverty comes from corrupt companies who work their people without a fair wage, if, if poverty comes from cash into uh, you know, paycheck loans and title loans that are spreading across this country, that's injustice. And that's the very place Christians need to be. To say, we will not desert the people God loves. So that's my challenge to you. If you're going to be the future of the PCA, then let's try to shift it more to look like the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all the good things you've given us. Oh, we love you, Lord. Please help our lives to count. Please help each of these saints who are here to find the good works you have already prepared for them to do. And Lord, if it's in their vocation, if it's through the ministry of the church, if it's on the mission field, Lord, if it's in the law courts, Lord, if it's in the barrios and the ghettos and the slums, oh Lord, empower them with the Holy Ghost to make a difference. That the name of Jesus might be praised and not resented because we have held it to ourselves. Please, Lord, do this for your glory in us, in all of us. We ask it in Jesus' name.